You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome back after a long summer hiatus. We have special edifying and enlightening episodes in the tubes that we were able to prepare over the summer. You are listening to Teller from Jerusalem, and behind the mic is the author and presenter of this podcast, Hanoch Teller. The partition plan of November 29, 1947, had been accepted by the General Assembly with 33 delegates voting in favor of the UNSCOP report, 13 against, including all of the Muslim states, and 10 abstained, including Britain. The Jews of Palestine danced in the streets when they heard that two-thirds had been achieved and that the General Assembly had endorsed the Jewish state. Dr. Chaim Weizmann was very instrumental in getting states to vote in favor of the partition. But as historian Connor O'Brien points out so well in his monumental history, The Siege, most instrumental was the government of the United States. Once Truman was committed to the resolution, it was important to the United States that the resolution should win and demonstrate that world opinion approved of President Truman's policies. And yet, Conor O'Brien writes that Weizmann's position at the time was not so much of that as a sheepdog gathering up votes, but rather as a watchdog, with an unwavering eye on the State Department. As we've pointed out in the past, the State Department has a very rich history of being anti-Semitic and certainly have no interest in Israel's benefit. There were key people in the State Department who were much more in sympathy with the Britain Foreign Office's view of things than that with President Truman's policy. Following the vote on November 29, meaning in early December, the British government informed that it would not attempt to carry out or assist with the policy voted on by the General Assembly, but it would continue its rule in Palestine until May 15, 1948, finally ending the rule of the mandate. What this meant in reality is that the British forces in Palestine would not intervene in the fighting that broke out between the Arabs and the Jews, and they would prevent the Jews from acquiring weapons as the Arab states prepared themselves for war. This requires a little elaboration, as it is unclear why the British would wish to linger for five months in Palestine with no avowed policy. Their agenda was to hamper the Jewish settlement's ability to acquire weapons in order to prepare to defend itself while it cooperated with the Arabs as they increased their armaments. For this reason, they remained in Palestine to ensure that the British withdrawal from Palestine would result in Arab victories and the emergence of a Palestinian state that would be friendly and grateful to Britain. We now turn to the History of Israel series for some background before analyzing a controversial battle. November 29, 1947. That's when the United Nations voted to adopt Resolution 181, partitioning the mandate for Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. While the Zionist leaders reluctantly accepted the result, the Arabs emphatically rejected the vote. They resented international outsiders deciding what happened to what they saw as their land and were determined to defeat any effort to establish a Jewish state in any part of mandatory Palestine. A new wave of violence between Arabs and Jews broke out right away, initiated by Arab violence, stabbings, shootings, road blockades, and some bombings. This was the beginning of the first phase of the war, before the entire region was engulfed in an interstate conflict in May 1948. 
From November 1947 to March 1948, the Arab forces continued to increase their attacks. They had the upper hand, with thousands of volunteer fighters from surrounding Arab countries infiltrating the region. Among other things, some of these forces organized a siege of Jerusalem, trapping the 100,000 Jewish residents of the city and preventing shipments of food or supplies. The effects were devastating. The main Jewish fighting force, the Haganah, made many attempts to break through the blockade, but simply couldn't. Nearly all of its armored vehicles were destroyed, and hundreds of its fighters were killed trying to bring supplies to Jerusalem. Israelis feared the Arab forces would win. By the end of March 1948, the situation for the Jews was so desperate that the U.S. seriously considered withdrawing its support for the U.N.'s partition plan because they became convinced the Jews would lose against the Arabs. There were sporadic attacks by Arabs against Jews since November 1947. And the time had finally come that the Jewish settlers abandoned their policy of Havlaga, self-restraint, and counterattack the Arabs. As a rule, the British at this point remained spectators. But it was not uncommon for British officers, who were disgusted at the Jews for revolting against them, and demoralized by their being pushed out, to actually commit acts of violence against the Jews on their own, as Conor O'Brien details. The worst example was the Ben Yehuda Street explosion on February 22, 1948, in which 52 people, mostly Jews, were murdered. As the Haganah was assembling its platoon of 1,500 men for Operation Nachshon to recapture Jerusalem, a force three times larger than anything it had used or mustered before, the Irgun and Lehi, seeking to help relieve the siege of Jerusalem, decided to take the town of Dir Yassin from which Arab terrorists were shooting onto the road into Jerusalem. Dir Yassin was one of the last villages on the west side of Jerusalem that the Arabs had not yet abandoned. In Menachem Begin's book, The Revolt, he writes that Dir Yassin was an important link in the chain of Arab positions enclosing Jerusalem from the west, and that its capture was part of a strategy agreed with the Haganah for keeping open lines of communication between Jerusalem and the rest of the Yishuv. As Conor O'Brien writes, there is no reason to doubt these statements, nor to doubt that advance warning was given to the civilians to leave, which was broadcast to them via loudspeaker. And yet again, we turn to the History of Israel series to explain. They launched Operation Nachshon, a military operation aimed at breaking the siege of Jerusalem by opening the road from Tel Aviv. The Arabs had been able to block supplies to Jerusalem by controlling several strategic vantage points along the highway from which they ambushed and fired on Israeli convoys. Dir Yassin was one of those strategic locations. It was less than a mile from the Jerusalem suburbs and was on a hill that overlooked a large portion of the city. So it was placed on a list of Arab villages to be taken over as part of Operation Nachshon. By the time the Jewish forces decided to advance into Dir Yassin, most of the Arab villages to the west of Jerusalem had already been abandoned by the residents. The battle took place on April 9th, 1948. What happened that day is the subject of much disagreement, but here's what seems clear. Even though the Haganah planned Operation Nachshon, the move against Dir Yassin was actually carried out by two smaller paramilitary groups, the Irgun and Lehi. Although these fighters lacked the training and equipment of the Haganah, they didn't anticipate any major resistance and felt that they could achieve their goals. So in the early morning of April 9th, 120 men from the Irgun and Lehi arrived at the village in two groups. They brought along a van with a bullhorn to deliver a message in Arabic that the villagers should put down their weapons and flee. Many in fact did leave, and many who remained were killed unintentionally in the course of the storming of the stone houses defended by the Arab forces. Their gunmen, who were barely trained and poorly equipped, 
were unlikely to stand their ground in a real battle. None of their fighters expected significant resistance. The operation began on April 9, 1948, when a truck with a loudspeaker went to this village to instruct the villagers to leave or to surrender. According to one version, the truck got stuck before it got close enough to be heard. Communication between the Irgun and Lechi fighters failed, and they encountered far more resistance than they had banked on. In their panic, the fighters tossed grenades. There are some, not historical scholars, and individuals with a clear and identifiable agenda that accuse the Jewish forces of having committed atrocities. Contemporary scholars, and any historian of note, have thoroughly debunked these accusations. Arabs claimed that the Irgun fighters killed over 200 and raped women. The Irgun admitted a high body count, was more like 100, and vehemently denied rape charges. The actual number of the scholars is 107 were killed. Their denials of the Irgun fell upon deaf ears, for everyone had incentive to make the most of this catastrophe and debacle. Daganah wanted to accuse them competing Irgun of being irresponsible and murderous. The Arabs wished to highlight to the international community that the Jews were butchering them, and in so doing cemented the will of the surrounding Arab countries to enter the fray. Both the Haganah and the Arabs had inflated the numbers of their own for their own purposes. Killing civilians had never been the intent, but that is not how the Arabs described it. At the time, rumors spread of a massacre, prompting Arabs to flee their homes and eventually turning them into refugees. To this day, Palestinian Arab propagandists always cite Dir Yassin as a claim that Israel was born in sin. Betty Morris and Daniel Gordas are two respected historians that have written about this battle. According to Benny Morris, the van overturned in a ditch and fierce fighting ensued. Abu Mahmoud, an Arab villager, told the BBC in 1998 that he did hear the warning from the van. Former Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who was the leader of the Irgun at the time of the attack, said that a substantial number of residents actually did leave the village before the fighting began, having heeded the warnings from the arriving Jewish troops. So it's not clear how many people in Dir Yassin actually heard the warnings. Still, all agree that the Arabs who stayed offered fierce resistance, which surprised the Irgun fighters. In response, the Jewish troops used hand grenades, killing many, including both armed and unarmed civilians. The question, though, is why? According to Begin, the clash was a house-to-house -house battle in which the use of hand grenades was necessary. Professor Daniel Gordis argues that the ill-prepared Irgun fighters used the grenades in a panic when their communications equipment failed and they were fired upon by residents. According to Benny Morris, the Irgun fighters used grenades only under great pressure, having been pinned down by fire at each house. The battle at Dir Yassin certainly earned itself a lot of bad press. Many horrific reports were spread by the Arabs in the days after the attack. There was the account of surviving villagers being paraded through Jewish neighborhoods of West Jerusalem before being summarily executed, and the claim that many women and children were brutally slaughtered at Dir Yassin, publicized in a broadcast by the Arab headquarters in Ramallah. Some reports from Israelis who were eyewitnesses to the fighting or arrived shortly thereafter did testify to saying some horrible things like executions. But some of the claims of atrocities certainly appear to have been fictitious. Arab reports at the time stated that there were multiple instances of rape, especially of school children, which the Irgun fighters immediately denied. Now, these allegations persist to this day, despite the fact that both Israeli and Palestinian scholars have concluded that there is no evidence whatsoever of rape having taken place. The historian Eliezer Tauber argues that Dir Yassin was not merely a poorly organized battle which led to a massacre. 
Instead, he suggests it was a myth perpetrated by the Palestinian Arab leadership, whose purpose was to bring the surrounding Arab armies into the battle. The exaggerated reports of some 250 deaths at Deir Yassin, as well as the allegations that atrocities were committed, had unexpected consequences. Some Jewish leaders, who were political rivals of the Irgun, thought that the charges of cruelty would discredit the group and did not attempt to challenge the Arab claims. The fact is, the country and Ben-Gurion benefited from the panic that ensued and the increased Arab flight. Getting the Arabs out of the territory that was assigned to the Jews was precisely what Ben-Gurion wanted. But had Jewish fighters indeed committed, as the Palestinian propagandists claim, genocide or rape? Later, Jewish and Palestinian scholars confirmed that there had not been rape at all, and the death toll was precisely as the Gun had claimed. After the Deir Yassin attack, there were Arab counter-killings that followed quickly in the wake. The most savage of these was the Arab attack on April 15, 1948, in which 78 Jewish doctors, nurses, and patients on their way to Adassa Hospital and Mount Scopus were ambushed and killed. Among the dead was ophthalmologist Dr. Chaim Yasky, who was the director of the Hadassah Medical Organization, whose pioneering work on the scourge of trachoma had saved the eyesight of tens of thousands of Arabs. Arab sources cited Deir Yassin as the impetus for carrying out the Hadassah convoy massacre five days later. In that attack, a convoy bringing supplies and personnel to Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus in Jerusalem was ambushed by Arab forces, resulting in the deaths of 78 doctors, nurses, students, patients, faculty members, and Haganah fighters. From the Arab perspective, they also hoped that the image of atrocities committed by Jews against the Arab population would mobilize the Arab countries to intervene in the conflict. For example, Arab leader Hussein Khalidi told a Palestinian news editor at the time, we must make the most of this. The Palestine Broadcasting Service then issued a press release stating that at Deir Yassin, children were murdered, pregnant women were raped, all sorts of atrocities. It's also clear that the Arab propaganda created a legend among ordinary people and soldiers about the ferocity of the Irgun fighters spreading panic at the mere mention of the organization. Begin wrote, not what happened at Deir Yassin, but what was invented about Deir Yassin helped to carve the way to our decisive victories on the battlefield. The legend was worth half a dozen battalions to the forces of Israel. And for those who wanted nothing more than for the Arabs to just leave, these stories only prompted more Arabs to flee their homes, ultimately making them refugees. The hyperbole surrounding the events of that day, in which the Arabs wanted to demonize the Jewish enemy to rile up local Arabs and inflame the entire Arab world, was so effective that it did just that. It terrified the Arabs to the point that many fled, ultimately becoming refugees of the war. The Haganah also benefited from spreading the story and building up the tragedy to show the world that the Irgun was not fit to lead the fledgling state. Operation Nachshon got supplies into Jerusalem, but the city was still under constant barrage from the Arabs. They besieged the Jewish quarter of the old city with bombardment, and on April 13, a kindergarten was hit and 20 children were injured. In May 1948, Golda Meir, disguised as an Arab woman, went to meet King Abdallah of Jordan. Golda Meir understood that Jordan was considering joining the other Arab states who wished to war against a new state, and that war was entering into a new, far more lethal phase. She pleaded with King Abdallah not to join the attack against the new Jewish state, and explained that Israel and Jordan could be allies. But Abdallah understood that in the larger political world in which he operated, he had no choice but to join the war against the Jewish state. He then asked Golda not to hurry into proclaiming a new Jewish state, and she replied to the king, we've been waiting 2,000 years 
Is that hurrying? Goldemir understood that creating a state was about much more than creating sovereignty. It was key to ensuring that the future of the Jewish people, after all the Jews had been through, there was no time to waste, and failure was simply not an option. The king remained noncommittal, and as she departed his office, Godemir turned to Abdullah and said, If you can offer no more to us than what you're offering just now, then there will be a war, and we will win it. But perhaps we can meet again after the war, and after there is a Jewish state. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Teller from Jerusalem is very pleased to welcome our new talented and very experienced sound engineer, Howard Felsen. You should be hearing the improvement of his expertise already. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Tele products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Tele from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.